you have a Bible, you might like to turn to Ecclesiastes. Um, hope you know where it is now, at least. And uh, we come to the very end, so you need to be in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes this morning. So here's the thought that went through my mind. It might have gone through your mind. If everything is meaningless, as the teacher suggested at the beginning of his book, if in fact everything is a chasing after the wind, then what is the point of the book of Ecclesiastes? Maybe you don't think like me. Couldn't it be argued that the teacher himself has in fact wasted his time writing his book because after all it is only a chasing after the wind? That would be tragically and irritatingly true if it was all the teacher really had to say, don't you think? Because if in fact that is all that is true, then the teacher has wasted not only his time in writing his book, but your time, as you say, week by week, listening to his writings in his book. Because it's just in truth a chasing after the wind and you could have spent your time doing something far more profitable couldn't you? The teacher, though, has deliberately wanted to challenge you and to make you think. He's wanted to ask you, is that really true? Is life simply a chasing after the wind? He's wanted you to look again at life with all its joys and all its challenges and to think about it. He's invited you to look in on his experiment with life, his pursuit of happiness and satisfaction. He said, come take a look. He shared with you the discoveries that he's made. You can pursue knowledge and wisdom. You can become clever and know a great deal about everything. And we've all met those people, haven't we? You can pursue laughter and humour and entertainment. You can pursue alcohol and lose yourself in drink. You can pursue art and build yourself many houses. You can pursue the beauty of creation and surround yourself in it. You can pursue money and possessions and become rich and have a great hoard of things. You can pursue music and lose yourself and its beauty and creativity. But I do have to say, it is like standing in heaven here this morning. I don't know what it sounds like out there, but it sounds really good up here. You can pursue sex and surround yourself with beautiful people. You can pursue affirmation and go become famous. You can pursue your work life and build yourself a wonderfully successful career. You can do and pursue all or any of those things, says the teacher. But he invites you to reflect that in the end, they are only a chasing after the wind because they will not bring you what your heart really desires. The teacher has invited you too to reflect on something you already know, but we don't like to talk about. That life is messy, it is unpredictable, it is sometimes tragic, and it is, in truth, mostly out of our control. 
In many ways, he's simply pointing out the obvious. The trouble is, we don't always spot the obvious, do we? I had a phone call this week from someone who came to an Easter team meeting here on Wednesday night. On Thursday morning, they phoned me and said, Ian, did I leave my glasses behind? I said, I don't know. I'll go and have a look. I went and had a look, and I texted them back and said, no, you didn't leave your glasses behind. Two minutes later, I got a text back saying, don't worry, found them in my trouser pocket. We don't always see the obvious, do we? The teacher, it seems then, tells the story of life that is messy, confusing, sometimes ruined and tragic, and ultimately, like trying to catch the wind. A story which, it seems, makes his own words futile. What difference does his book make? What difference do his words make if that story is the whole story? And here is the beauty and the challenge of this wonderful little book called Ecclesiastes. I met a lady yesterday who is retired and spent 20 years in Peru with Latin Link as a missionary, worked in a church as a pastoral care worker, and is now doing some counselling at St. Catherine's Hospice, which is where I met her. We got chatting. She said, I have never been in a church where they have preached through Ecclesiastes. It's a lovely little book. That story is not the whole story. And it's not ultimately the story that the teacher wants to tell and the story the teacher wants you to hear. The teacher wants to point you to a bigger and far, far better story. doesn't mean the story isn't true, the one he's been telling, but it does mean it's only part of a story and it's surrounded by a deeper, richer and far, far more true and profound story. And it is that bigger and better story that the teacher not only wants you to see and hear, but he wants you to dwell in. Another way of saying all that might be this. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They collect the collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making of many books there is no end. And much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Here then is the point of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember right at the beginning we said, you've got to wait right to the end before he reveals it. And here it is. It is an invitation to look at life as it really is, not to avoid it, or to pretend that it's other than it is. But it is also an invitation to look at life that is firmly rooted in the bigger and far better story of God. 
In his experiment with finding satisfaction in life, the teacher saw that death ruined everything, didn't he? In one story, death is the end. The thing that wrecks everything, that lurks around every corner and behind every situation. And it is the thing, if we're honest, that haunts us, isn't it? In the far bigger and far better story of God, death invites us to seek the road which makes death itself a fulfillment. And the teacher invites us to seek the road which makes death a fulfillment by inviting us to live life backwards. The teacher has chosen his words very carefully, we are told, and he wants his words to point you to that bigger and better story. That's the reason he wrote his words. He wants you to live in the light of what you know to be true and to do it well in God's bigger and far better story. He wants you to live in the light and the truth of God's bigger and far better story than that life is simply a chasing after the wind. There is a better way to live than simply to pursue knowledge and entertainment and art and literature and music and money and possessions and sex and work and affirmation and fame for the sake of making you happy. That way of life literally ends in death. But there is, says the teacher, a way of life you can live in which you can truly enjoy all of those things and any of those things. You really can enjoy them. They are gifts of God where death is not the end but is a fulfillment. And just when you think it's over, God will say, no, there's a whole load more. It's called... That's not a trick. That's not a trick. It's called heaven. The teacher has been very careful with choosing his words and his final words are what he wants you to understand how his words work. I am very careful with my words, mostly. Certainly when I'm writing a sermon. I have told you that I will not preach anything of which I am not convinced and that's why there are some things you won't hear me say. They sound great, but I'm not convinced of them. The teacher is very careful with his words. He wants his words to help you with four things that will help you live life backwards. Or to put it another way, he wants to help you so that you can live in God's big and better story and do it wisely and well where death is fulfillment. So if I asked you this question, I wonder what your answer would be. What did you think of Ecclesiastes before we started this series. Did you even know where it was in the Bible, for example? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Perhaps your answer might be along these lines. Well, honestly, I didn't really know where it was. Thought Ian might have been making it up. Uh, Actually, Arthur is a bit of a gloomy, depressing book and a somewhat difficult book. I think I might have been in that camp myself. But I hope now you would have something different to say. I think when we don't understand it, actually, it does seem like a somewhat pessimistic read, doesn't it? It's all a bit doom and gloom. 
The thing is, I, I've come to think of it as a bit of like a negative of a photograph, if you remember those old things called films that you used to put in your camera. <laughs> Do you remember those? And if you open the back too soon, yeah, you wrecked everything. And then you had to take it to the shop or post it and have to wait two weeks and then there'd be great excitement, but only eight of your 12 pictures came out and you were devastated. Kids, you have no idea how lucky you are. Can you go, I'll delete that. Oh, I'll put the colour up here. I'll change that. Oh, I'll put somebody else's head on that bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we didn't have any of that. Negative of photograph. The negative is slightly dark, but it points to a picture that is full of life and colour. A colour picture brings great pleasure. That's why you take photographs, isn't it? So you can have great pleasure when you look at them, remember. And verse 10 says, The teacher wrote carefully that which is upright and true. Now, scholars reckon perhaps a better translation of upright and true might be this. He wrote words of delight. The teacher searched to find words of delight for people like you and me. So next time you go back and read Ecclesiastes, hold that in your mind and say, actually, these are words of delight. I might have to work hard with them, but they are words of delight. His words of delight or pleasure are words that point us to God's bigger and far better story. And words of God's big and better story are by their very nature upright and true. Would you have thought of the words of Ecclesiastes as being delightful? I'm not sure anyone would have said that. Maybe you would. Maybe you've read it before and studied it. But that's exactly what they are. Thank you, Roland. You see, Roland studied it. Roland's a very wise man. That's exactly what they are. Words of delight that tell us, by the way they are delightful, what is true. Remember God's words to Job when he finally speaks? Yeah, you remember them? Vaguely? He says, who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Now you can if you want to understand that to be in this kind of mode. Who is this who darkens my doors with words without knowledge? Basically, how dare you? You've come into a headmaster's office and how dare you challenge me? You can read it like that if you want to. I think there's a much better way of reading it. I think it's this gentle, loving invitation. Job, you know nothing, but let me show you something. And what does God do in Job chapter 36? Do you remember? Someone must know. We studied it. He takes him on a tour of the universe and he says, Job, look at this. Where were you when I created that? Where were you? Look at this. Come and have a look at this. Where were you when I did that? Where were you when I told the waves how far they could go? Where were you when I went, boom, and all the stars went to space? Where were you, Job, when I created, and I love this thought, if the behemoth might be the hippo, I'm going with it for today. Where were you when I created the hippo? And if you read Job, it says it ranks first among my creation. Have you ever thought that God might think the hippo was the best thing he ever made? (laughs) The hippo really gives nothing back to God, does he? He just wallows around in mud and water. And God goes, look at that, Joe. That's fantastic. What about the ostrich? The ostrich is a bird that can't fly. The ostrich has got one of the tiniest brains you're ever going to find. 
possibly with the exception of mine. The, the ostrich is so dumb, it puts its eggs in the sand, and then it can't remember where it put them. And it runs around, it runs really fast, but it's a bird, it's meant to fly. And God says, but look at it, Job, isn't that fantastic? Those are words of delight. And the way God tells them is words of delight. That's Ecclesiastes. It's the same thing that's happening in Ecclesiastes. God chooses words of delight. And by the very nature of the way he uses them, they become delightful because he tells what is upright and true. Words that are upright and true are words of delight given to you by the teacher. To help you live wisely in God's far bigger and far better story. It tells in beautiful language the truth about God. And teacher wants you to know that God's word is his gift given to you for your pleasure and delight. You're going to get to know God first and foremost through his word. Did you know that? You get to know God first and foremost through his word. And through his words, the teacher wants you to find the joy and the pleasure in life. Go enjoy all those things. Do it in God's bigger and far better story. There was another teacher, a much better one, who came as the word of God. And in his own words said... I have come that you may have life in all its fullness. That's the bigger and far better story. The teachers both want you to delight in the words so that in the word you will find the delight of God's bigger and better story. Sometimes God's word or the words of the teacher stop us in our tracks. You might remember this verse. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. What? That can't be true, we say. Isaiah 53, 6. For we, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There is a great shepherd who loves his sheep more than anything and he wants to find them, bring them back and keep them safe. Do you remember that other lovely book, Ezekiel, that I hope you're still reading? Because in Ezekiel, God declares this, God himself says this, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. I will rescue them from all the places they are scattered When it talks about the goat and the shepherd, it's saying, look, sometimes God's word stops you in your tracks. Jesus, the great teacher, said of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Sometimes to keep us safe, to keep us on the right path, to keep us attentive to God's bigger and better story, we need the pain, the rebuke, the admonishment of God's word in our lives. That's what it's for. It's for pleasure, but it's to keep us in that story. So I'd have this question for you this morning. What is your relationship with God's word?
You delight in God's word when you come to it with a childlike expectation. A childlike expectation is ready to be surprised and to find something new. Now, I know I say this sometimes, but if you don't bring a Bible to church with you or have it on your tablet, what exactly do you want to gain? That's a very valid question to ask. Sometimes people say to me, oh, in our church, we stick all the words you're going to read on the screen. No, I'm not going to do that, and I'm never going to do that, and I'll tell you why I'm never going to do that, because it makes you lazy. You don't have to look it up. If you haven't got a Bible this morning, how do you know, because I'm guessing you haven't studied Ecclesiastes and you've memorized it, how do you know that I've actually read you what is in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 9 to 14? How would you know? I could have made it up. I could be talking rubbish about something that I just made up last night. I thought, oh, this will get them. This is good. This sounds good. If you get to know God first and foremost through his word, why would you not bring his word? And you know, let's face it, friends, our brothers and sisters all over the world who are persecuted are dying without these, and we've got bucket loads of them, and we don't even bring them to church with us. Now, that's a challenge, isn't it? But I think a very valid one. What's your relationship with God's Word? God's Word itself says this, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. If that's true... This is worth having. God is always ready to speak. Always. The question is, are we awake to what he wants to say? Now I'm going to throw in another little challenge here, because I hear this sometimes, and I hope I'm going to do this in the appropriate manner. But I sometimes hear people say, they don't come to all age worship because there's nothing in it for me. Mm. You need to go away and think about what you've just said. Because what you've actually just said is, well, on that particular Sunday, God has nothing to say to me. God's word is not living and active and powerful, so I won't bother to turn up. If God is always ready to speak, it doesn't matter what the service is, doesn't matter who the preacher is, doesn't matter who the worship band is, that's irrelevant. I do believe on one occasion in the Bible, God spoke through a donkey. Maybe he's doing it this morning. What's your relationship with God's word? Here's another question. When was the last time that you submitted yourself to God's word, something you heard God say, even when you didn't like what it said? Maybe like something the preacher just said this morning. Oh, I don't like that, Ian. I don't like you talking about the Bible, and I don't like you challenging me coming to all age worship. Well, you have to go away and figure it out yourself. But the Bible is there to keep us in in the truth of God's bigger and better story. And sometimes we have to be challenged on that. That's the purpose of the word. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I find that one quite hard. Forgive others as I have forgiven you. I find that one quite hard. The teacher urges us in these words not to tame the Bible. So pleasure or rebuke? The teacher, verse 11, wants us to know that the best way to live is in fact to fear God. I was in this uh, training thing I'm doing at St. Catherine's yesterday and 
um, they, we had to do what comes into your mind when you talk about spirituality. That was fine. And then my heart sank when they said, right, now do it for religion. Well, you can imagine what came out, can't you? What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of religion? War, conflict, hate. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go again. Fear was one of the words on our sheet. And I said to people, look, I I get what you mean by fear, because I agree with that. Actually, religion does provoke a lot of fear. But in a Christian biblical understanding, fear doesn't mean to be scared of. It means to be in awe of. Fear God. Be in awe of God. That's the best way to live. He wants you to know, the teacher, that the best perspective from which to live is the perspective of God's bigger and better story. You are loved, precious, special, cherished, held, affirmed by the God who made you, judged you, redeemed you, and who longs to participate with you in all you do. That's God's bigger and far better story. That's the perspective which is the best one to live in. And the teacher wants you to know that in the best perspective from which to live... This is the perspective he wants you to see everything in life. When you're at work, when you're at home, when you're at school or university, uh, when you enjoy a meal with friends, when you go to the cinema or read a book or go for a walk, when you visit a friend or help a neighbour, when you're on holiday or cleaning the kitchen or doing the gardening, when things are easy and when they are difficult, when life is good and when it is most certainly not, in life's triumphs and in its tragedies, you live in God's bigger and better story. Always. And the teacher says that the best way to live is to remember that truth and hold it in your heart always. So the teacher reminds you that the best way to live is to live life backwards. Live in the light of the truth of what you know is going to happen. And live in the truth of God's bigger and better story in the light of that. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. The teacher reminds us that the best way to live is to live honestly and fully in the light of the truth that we will in fact one day die. But that in God's bigger and better story, death is a fulfillment. The vision in Revelation helps us beautifully. These words are Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Uh, we missed that. You know that song we sing about the crystal sea? And you think, what on earth is the crystal sea going on about? Well, in the Bible, sea is always an image of chaos. So when you have a crystal sea, it's calm. There's no chaos. Where there's no sea, there's no chaos. That's the point. There's no sea. There's no chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, 
I am making all things new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are upright and true. Some people tragically spend the whole of their life life avoiding the truth and pretending that life is other than it really is. The question the teacher asks is this. What are you going to do? The teacher has been brutally honest and he has pulled no punches. He invites us to a way of life that is simply the best way to live. We might call it a win-win, friends. To live, it is to live life backwards. Live in the truth of your death by living in the truth of the death of the great teacher. Live in the truth of God's bigger and better story. And then you can say these words with Paul in Philippians. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. And all God's people said, thank God for that. Well, we're going to spend some time... It's quietly worshipping. You can take this time and use it how you want to do it. I am. Um, it's always difficult when you're leading worship and choosing songs because you don't want to be manipulative or coercive. And sometimes God takes you in a place that you didn't expect to go. But I chose these songs because I think they might be songs of response that we might be able to sing in the light of the truth of the book of Ecclesiastes. I think actually this morning you've already sung all the truth of Ecclesiastes if you've listened carefully to the songs you've sung. Bless the Lord, O my soul, when it gets to the day when I'm going to go to be with the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Living life backwards. We're going to do it again now in some songs. If God has been speaking to you and and laid something on your heart that is for the rest of us, then come and share it. If you want to pray with some people or somebody, then the prayer ministry team would be very happy to do that. I just take this time this morning and let God do whatever it is that God has begun to do in your heart and your mind.